0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. It's only in recent years that the great liberal and foundational sociologist Herbert Spencer has received a modern interrogation. Libertarianism.org's Paul Meany traces many of Spencer's influences both in his time and since his time and discusses how his influence faded and why a resurgence is now underway. We talked a little bit last time about the work of herbert spencer in helping define sociology and sort of set the terms of those kinds of discussions but he was influenced by many things you said was surprising to me you said that adam smith was not a big one necessarily that he did not cite adam smith that much and yet i hear so many echoes of the things that like adam smith had written in the theory of moral sentiments about social interaction and how that should be A sort of a discovery process for humanity. But what were the influences on Herbert Spencer's thinking?
1: Herbert Spencer did not go to the traditional academy. He was from a dissenting family, meaning that he couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge because those places required religious tests to get into. And his father was a Quaker, if I recall correctly. His father eventually became a Quaker. Yes, he started as a Methodist, went to a Quaker, the usual pipeline. (laughs) Is is that true? Yeah, I actually do know someone who uh, was a minister (laughs) for being Methodist and then became a Quaker (laughs) after. So it does happen. But no, he came from a very particular kind of family. That had a very particular way of doing things, and so. And,
0: but you say a dissenter. Explain what that means, because I don't think people who aren't Quakers don't really yes. understand what that means.
1: The dissenting tradition was people who resisted joining the Anglican Church, which was kind of the the government, state-run church of England at the time. And so the dissenters would eventually become the Parliamentarians, and a lot of them would go towards America and become the Puritans. But there was always the dissenting culture that lasted throughout English life, um, it was kind of marked by nonconformity middle class values, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of commerce, and it was also very against any sort of established privilege. When we talk about privilege today, we hear about kind of racial privilege, like white privilege. Back in the 19th century, what privilege really meant was that one person operated above the law effectively. So privilege was the law is suspended momentarily for a particular kind of person, normally a very wealthy aristocrat. So Herbert Spencer grew up seeing all of this and being very, very against it. And the real main intellectual influences on his life, I would say, were his father, who he always admired and always wanted to impress, his uncle who taught him an awful lot about the free market. And we often think about Adam Smith when we're talking about the free market, but Herbert Spencer's growing up at a time when the corn laws were just uh, repealed. And he's actually breathing this very free market air that's around at the time. The corn law movement, the anti law movement was spearheaded by John Bright and Richard Cobden, and it kind of brought England to a whole new era of free trade. Gladstone started reducing tariffs all over. And so the intellectual influences for Herbert Spencer aren't always found in books, especially because he never liked to admit how much someone influenced him. All autobiographies are a little bit of fiction, but Herbert Spencer's has a lot more fiction than others, you might say. He really tries to cover his tracks intellectually and make it seem like it's all him. He is the initial genius of it all. But I would say that two ideas that really influenced him or to an idea and a person would be obviously as we talked about the importance of evolution. Evolution was the cause of everything in his life and everything that he thought would work. And so when we're comparing him to thinkers in the Anglosphere, it might be easier to compare him to Adam Ferguson, to Adam Smith, but someone he encountered and only talked a little bit about was Thomas Hodgkin, who is a very radical uh, libertarian thinker, almost an anarchist, a follower of William Godwin, who he met during his time working for The Economist. And while there, Hodgkin kind of brought a lot of justifications for what Herbert Spencer already believed, but he brought the kind of intellectual backing that he required. We didn't even mention that Herbert
0: Spencer worked for The Economist for a few years of his early career.
1: It was after he left uh, being a civil engineer, and it was kind of a quiet time, but that was the perfect time for him to start working on some of his books.
0: So, in in terms of the, those tracing those influences, may be a little more difficult than it would be for other people who are well regarded within social science. But in terms of his contemporaries, there are people who were familiar with him, knew him. Writers, writers of fiction, mm-hmm. people like D. H. Lawrence were among the people who were uh, influenced by Herbert Spencer. And I, th- I think this speaks to what you said before that. That he was, if not a celebrity, at least a very popular writer of the time.
1: Mm -hmm. It's really hard for people to understand how popular Herbert Spencer is because he's so unknown today. And unlike a lot of authors, his influence faded extremely rapidly. Uh, Spencer became kind of a curmudgeon later in life because he realized the world that he wanted, the world with the law of equal freedom for everyone, wasn't coming to fruition. What was coming to fruition Was the European powers gearing up for war and more state intervention into everyday life? So he became more and more of a curmudgeon, and he went from being a rock star influencer of the Victorian world to kind of being a bit of a grumpy old man, and who in some ways died in a bit of obscurity.
0: You also mentioned before that his scientific ideas were cast aside. This was within his lifetime. So a lot of his work probably isn't of much value today. And he sort of was, I guess, consumed by this wave of science that came about in the mid-1850s.
1: And also the increasing specialization within the academy. There was no longer room for the kind of great man of theories. It was much more specialized disciplines now. But what I think really pushes Herbert Spencer into obscurity is his relationship with the phrase social Darwinism. And the reason I didn't read Spencer for a long time was because this association is so strong that I personally just assumed that Herbert Spencer wasn't reading because he was a social Darwinist. Um, What does social Darwinism mean? Uh, It was defined by a few different people, but the main person behind it is a scholar in 1944, Richard Hofstadter, who wrote a book called Social Darwinism in America. And he writes that Herbert Spencer is kind of the godfather of social Darwinism, the survival of the fittest, that we should cast aside the weak and the poor, and promote the strong and the able. But when we read Spencer's writings, he's very about something he calls the equal law of freedom, that everyone should have the same rights, that everyone might not be equal, but everyone should have the same playing field to maximize their development, growth, and prosperity. And I think another part about the social Darwinist argument that kind of gets tripped up a little bit is that Hofstadter makes these assumptions that social Darwinism was a huge force in American life, we only start seeing the phrase social Darwinism in academic literature after Richard Hofstadter's book was already published. But when we look actually at Spencer's life, I was talking about how he faded into obscurity. That was in his home country of the United Kingdom. Internationally, Spencer was very, very popular in a host of different countries. Um, Importantly, in India, Japan, even China in some regards. And so, I think that the, the argument that Spencer was a social Darwinist who was in some way racist or had some sort of miserable feelings towards the poor, kind of falls apart when you start looking at the history of it and seeing that Spencer's writings were avidly read by the poor colonials looking for their freedom all over the world. And so much so that Itagaki Tasuke, who's the founder of the Liberal Party in Japan, calls social statics the textbook of human rights, one of the first books brought into Japan that talks about women's rights is Herbert Spencer's work on education. Um, in India, there's a journal of sociology that was founded by the Indian Home Rule Society, and every single edition had two quotes from Spencer at the top, and they were, Every man is free to do that which he wills, provided he infringes not the equal freedom of another man. And the other quote was Resistance to aggression is not simply justifiable, but imperative. Non-resistance hurts both altruism and egoism. So Spencer was a staunch anti-imperialist, and fundamentally, he believed that getting the government out of the way would make for a more prosperous society through this kind of evolutionary model that he posed. So I think uh, tarring Spencer with the, the brush of being a social Darwinist has done huge damage to his reputation and really stopped a lot of people from understanding his value as a thinker, especially uh, we we're talking about his evolutionary views and how the science was left by the wayside. The science might have been left by the wayside, but Spencer really picks up on the ideas that Hayek would touch later in spontaneous order. So it wasn't all for nothing by any means. A
0: lot of what you describe of this this idea of a sort of churning society where good things emerge and free people are, are left alone to help those things emerge and maybe profit from it in some way seems entirely contemporary and yet Herbert Spencer is somebody who's largely forgotten due to a wave of thinking in the years following his death is that fair
1: yeah there's a lot of factors the specialization of science like evolutionary theories moving on uh, there's a lot of reasons that spencer fell behind and also the main victim of the cynicism of the early 20th century was liberalism and so with liberalisms falling out of favor so too did spencer
0: you mentioned this before but i want to stress it again if somebody could read something by herbert spencer who as boring as a lot of his writing might be it, he also stressed clarity mm-hmm. in writing and dispensing with a lot of academic jargon and uh sort of obfuscating language he said he wanted to get rid of the friction in the english language so if if you could recommend just a couple of pieces for people to read like i said i read the the man versus the state or parts of it when I was younger. And it seemed entirely clear, but that was a collection of essays. It wasn't a sprawling set of volumes.
1: Man versus the state is an excellent place to start. I would also recommend the proper sphere of government, which he wrote when he was quite young. But for me, I think one of the best things he ever wrote is the essay over legislation. It really gets to the core of why government is never going to be the solution to nearly any of our problems. And I think that is a fantastic idea that really will never go out of vogue. It's kind of an eternal piece that we're going to keep coming back to again and again. And every time I read it, it ages just a little bit better. And it seems that Spencer is, in some ways, light years ahead of his contemporaries talking about public choice theory in an early form.
0: Paul Meany is editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. We spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.